Hello and welcome to Simply Why. I am your host, Connor Reed. Simply Why is a podcast brought to you by Indiana Wesleyan University, where we do a deep dive into the stories behind our outcomes. Our guests share the choices that changed their lives, the paths that led them to where they are, and of course, the why at the heart of it all. Our guest today is Dr. John Kalaga. Dr. Kalaga is the recently appointed president of Indiana Wesleyan University. He has worked in higher education for 34 years, including serving as president of Ohio Christian University for five years, and before that, he was the provost at Asbury University. Dr. Kalaga, thanks so much for being on. Oh, it's great to be here, Connor. All right, well, we'll just dig in with the serious, hard-hitting questions. All right. Question number one, bait fishing or fly fishing? Fly fishing. Yeah, absolutely. Easy answer. All right, question number two, mere Christianity or G.K. Chesterton's orthodoxy? Wow, that is a hard one. How about both? You've you've hit both of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis and G.K. Chesterton, and both of my favorite books. I didn't actually read Chronicles of Narnia until I was an adult, and I've never made through all seven. I've only made through through the first four. All of the Father Brown mysteries and orthodoxy, absolutely. All right, here's another one, and this is maybe the most controversial. Vikings or cults? I'll go with the cults because I really don't have any love for the Vikings. Okay. Yeah. I was born and raised in Michigan, but I don't really consider the Detroit Lions my team. Okay. I was a more of a Pistons, Tigers, Red Wings fan. Barry Sanders, but not the Lions. But yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, that's good. <laughs> That'll appeal to our Indiana mm-hmm. audience. Great. All right. Well, now we'll get into the actual questions. So you're a university president. You've been a president at two different universities. Mm-hmm. What was your first job? First job out of college? Yeah. I was a youth pastor. Oh. Yeah. I was going to be an architect for no good reason other than the fact that I was really good at math and drawing, and my brother was going to be an architect. That was kind of the path I was on until my senior year in high school. And then uh, the Lord kind of got a hold of me. I was already a Christian and, you know, a good kid, and I wasn't rebelling, but I was already Christian, so I'd, I'd almost call this my entire sanctification moment where I felt like the, he'd been my l- savior, but I needed to make him lord of my career choices and my future. And uh, that's when I felt called into the ministry. So my senior year, I dropped all my math and started taking a lot of English uh, speaking classes and was preparing to enter the ministry. And that's when I made my choice of college and, and headed that direction. Mm, that's awesome. So youth pastor and university president are two very wildly different jobs. Do you see kind of any overlap or any skills that you used as a youth pastor that helps you in your current position? Well, there's a lot of transferable skills. I was a DJ at a Christian radio station for four years, and even that was very helpful. You don't think about it at the time, obviously. I mean, when you're 20 years old and you're locked in a studio and you're actually physically spinning vinyl records, you're not thinking, you know, someday this is really going to pay off and I'm going to be a president because that really wasn't on my horizon. Uh, I was only thinking of being a youth pastor. But what I was doing, I think the first thing that I, I find as I look back, I was following what the Lord was giving me as a passion. And I loved students. I loved high school. I loved junior high. I just loved being around students. I, I didn't have a youth pastor, but I loved Christian camps. But while I was in college, I was also an RA and got to have a good relationship with my RD. So when I went off to be a youth pastor, I actually landed in a college church. While I was the youth pastor, one of the duties not exactly outlined in my job description was to teach the college Sunday school class. 
So after four years, I, I met my wife at the church there. We got married. After four years, I felt like, you know, I really want to work with college students rather than junior high students. I loved junior high students, you know, one at a time. It was, it was just as a group, you know, that was a little difficult. And so I went back to my university to be an RD. But some of the skills that transferred, you have to communicate effectively to a similar age group. You have to work with parents. You have to work with a board at the church. You're really navigating similar waters. So those are some of the transferable skills um, that I found. Mm. And obviously that passion for college students has carried on to today. So what's your favorite part then about working with college students? I love talking with them about their future, finding out what their passion is, but really communicating to them that it doesn't really matter what you do, but you need to be salt and light in whatever you do. It's interesting that if you read scripture, Colossians and various verses, the Bible says, whatever you do, do to the glory of God. And we get so wrapped up in what job does this major going to lead to? What's it going to pay? And we get very job specific. The Bible's not as job specific as much as it is. Well, whatever you're doing, make sure you're being salt, make sure you're being light. One of my good friends was actually the, the impetus for the World Changer Society. I was friends with Bob Briner, who wrote the book Roaring Lambs. He was one of the first people to kind of call out from his own experience and say, listen, you know, if you are a, a film director, if you work in the sports field, you are just as much a part of the kingdom, have just as much responsibility to be salt and light as the person in the pulpit. And I really love those conversations with college students because the vast majority of the students at Indiana Wesleyan are not going into full-time Christian ministry, but every student should be thinking of themselves as going into ministry. I've also loved the conversations around the intersection of faith and learning. Dallas Willard would call it thinking straight. T.S. Eliot talked about terms of thinking in Christian categories. I think that's becoming more and more difficult than it was in 1984 when I graduated. The culture no longer props those categories up as well. There's really no um, social benefit anymore to being a Christian. The three determinative decisions that often college students make at college during those college years are who is their master, what is their mission, and maybe who is their mate. Those three things can often happen at college, and they will set the course for your entire life, for good or for ill. And I think those are great conversations to have with students. Definitely. Well, we were talking Lewis earlier, and one of his most fascinating books to me is The Abolition of Man. And it contains uh, one of his most striking images where he says, we make men without chests. Right. These hollow men. So how do you see that? And how do you look at yourself as trying to be the antithesis of that? To not make hollow men, but just the opposite? Yes. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, one of the things that Indiana Wesleyan does well, because we are still unapologetically Christ-centered, is there's a lot of confusion in our culture right now. And it's interesting that there's a lot of confusion about our origins and a lot of confusions about the, the end and how things are going to end. But one of the things that's happening in our culture is that we have taken away the whole idea that there's a larger narrative, a meta-narrative that makes sense. There's a larger story that makes sense of my story. You decide what's true for you, and I decide what's true for me. That sounds good until things don't start working out. What happens when I suffer? What happens when I start to feel depressed or I feel anxious or when I lose my job or I lose my parent? 
and and things aren't going well. And it's like, well, you decide what's meaningful. You make meaning for yourself. And there's no larger narrative. There's no larger story to make sense of your own story. And as a result, we see a student body coming to, and this is not true of only Indiana Wesleyan, but of most college students right now, they're the most anxious generation. They're the most depressed generation. Suicide rates are on the rise. COVID really exacerbated that in a lot of ways because now students were put into a situation in which they were isolated. And then we took away from them the idea that there was a larger narrative or there's a larger story that would help them make sense of what they're going through. And so what Indiana Wesleyan does, and I think does very well, it gives you that larger narrative. Not only does it give you the larger story, it also introduces you to the author of that story. So therefore, you realize right away that, okay, I have a story, but I'm not the author of it. God is. And he's got a plan. You see, story implies plot. Plot implies a plan, and plan involves a person. There's an intelligent mind behind the plan and the plot and the story. We talk about the Chronicles of Narnia. Well, there was an author, C.S. Lewis. Orthodoxy, Father Brown, there was an author. There was a mind behind all of that. There was a plan behind all of that. And that gives our students a sense of identity. The three things I think Indiana Wesleyan does well with the whole idea of story and plot and identity is that there are three basic questions. And, and this is I articulated in First Peter 2. He was writing to a group of people that were going through a horrible time of persecution. You know, he said, if you have to suffer for a little while, you know, we're talking about Nero, and that little while was, for some of them, it was the rest of their life. But he basically said, you need to know what you believe, you need to know where you belong, and you need to know um, how to behave. If you give those three things to students as they graduate, if you know what you believe, really believe, and you know where you belong, you're part of the royal priesthood. You're part of the family of God. You're a son of the king. You're a royal priesthood. You belong in the church. From that, you understand that the word of God is your authoritative text to tell you how to behave. So believing, belonging, behaving. If you get those three things when you graduate, then you graduate men and women who have a competence that the culture can't shake. You're a very dangerous person not in a violent way, but you're not easily shaken by the social whims of the culture. And earlier you were talking about salt and light. And I feel like oftentimes working in a Christian setting, that just being in a Christian setting, it kind of gets you in the mentality that, oh, well, since I am just, quote unquote, doing my job, then that is the mm -hmm. salt and light to an effect that I don't have to do anything extra. There doesn't have to be that piece of discipleship or whatever other bit because I am in a Christian workspace. So how do you see yourself being salt and light still in a Christian workspace and living that out further than just what your position calls for? Yeah, well, specifically uh, for me as president, it's a little different than perhaps a uh, faculty member who is a uh, philosophy, religion, ministry professor on the campus of Indiana Wesleyan. I would say both are still called to be salt, both are called to be light, if only for the reason that you don't have to sign a statement of faith claiming you're a Christian to come to Indiana Wesleyan University. There are lifestyle and community standards, standards that you have to live by, but we don't make you say that. The idea that just because you're a professor on the campus of Indiana Wesleyan, you are going to have non-Christian students in your classroom. And they're going to be looking at not only the words you say in the classroom, but how you treat your students, how you do your job, and do you do it 
with excellence? And do you communicate truth with grace? Do you merely talk the talk, but don't walk the walk? And that's true of every professor, every staff member, from the custodian all the way up to the president, from the coach, you know, all the way to the professor. We communicate the gospel with our lives as well as with our lips. That's true of everybody. So specifically to the Christian ministry aspect, that impacts everybody. But for me as president, I'm often called to be outside of the campus. So I have the opportunity often as president to uh, be salt and light off campus where some others on campus may not have that opportunity, but I'm definitely not shielded from the responsibility uh, to be salt and light merely because I'm the president of a Christian university. I think it was A.W. Tozer that said the greatest work of apologetics that we do is how we live our lives. Right. And I feel like that is something that we can often forget nowadays. Yeah, it's even more important now because you've got students coming, more and more students coming from dysfunctional homes. You really can't downplay the power of, of hospitality when it comes to evangelism. Now, you don't merely have people over to look at you and your wife, and you don't script it and make it look good when it's really not good because we're going to evangelize. I'm not talking about faking it. I don't know who has said it, but they, you know, the idea that preach Christ always, and if you have to use words, the power of a well-lived life is more powerful now. It'll become more obvious. Well, going back a little bit, you said that you went from being a youth pastor to being an RD and then moved more into the higher upside of Christian higher education. What made you decide to do that? Well, I think, you know, like I said before, you follow your passion and then you, um, you make the next decision and then you take the next step. I would say that the vision of becoming more than the dean of students, I think that was the natural next thing for me was, okay, you don't want to live in the dorm forever. So I went and got my master's degree in higher ed and that led to an associate dean's position, which led to a VP in student affairs position. And that was fine. And then you know, I was in student affairs for almost 15 years total, and, and an opportunity came while I was doing my doctorate to become a VP for advancement. And I think at that moment, or at that time when I made that decision, there was something in my mind that said, okay, I need advancement fundraising background if I'm going to be a president. I knew enough to know that that was part of the job. And so I think when I made the decision in the late 90s, 97, 98, to be a, become a vice president of advancement, that was when I set my sights. And I was already doing my doctoral work. That was when I set my sights on the fact that, okay, I'm going to do this. Worked in advancement for four years. I, was, I had my coursework done and didn't do anything with my dissertation and was on the verge of losing it all and uh, transferred from the VP of advancement into a faculty role and was able from the faculty role then to, again, move through the ranks in the faculty, but I had enough time to finish my doctorate. And from there, the opportunity to become a provost and a COO at Asbury arrived. And I thought maybe that was it. Sometimes I think the Lord works through a, um, a divine discontentment. I think I need to do the next thing. Sometimes not. I had great jobs, worked for great universities, but there arose this divine discontentment that that's probably the next thing I'd like to do would become a university president. And you allow the Lord to lead and open and close doors. Hmm. So if there's someone in the audience right now who's listening in and is thinking, I want to be a university president, I want to be a provost, I want to be in the higher ups of higher education, 
What would you say to that person as a piece of advice or a piece of encouragement? Yeah. Several years ago, several decades ago, the, only, the, the main path to the presidency was rising up through the ranks of the faculty. And there was a time when the faculty, and there still is schools like this, where if you don't come out of a particular discipline and in the faculty, they don't really want you to be the president. And then there came the route through student affairs, through advancement and fundraising. There was other routes to the presidency. Even recently now, there are people coming out of business and coming out of uh, a legal career. I would encourage you to say, if you haven't spent your whole career in higher ed, that's okay, because you bring a different set of lenses. But I would encourage you to understand that Christian higher ed is a nonprofit. It's a different animal than a for-profit business. There is still the cultural expectation and the... um, the milieu of shared governance. So what I would encourage somebody to do is to try to understand the environment that you're wanting to enter. If you are, in fact, in higher ed, then you need to make the tough decisions about how you're going to get the appropriate degrees. What's the appropriate degree? That's not decided. My degrees are in higher ed. I tried to make sure that I had experienced leadership at various positions within higher ed. So I was a chief student affairs officer. I was a chief advancement officer. And I was a chief operating officer before I became a chief executive officer. That's a route, but it's not the route. And then I would encourage you to get a mentor. There is no one route to the presidency. And I could pull randomly 15 presidents and look at their vitas and all 15 would be different. And I feel like with Christian education, especially in comparison to maybe like a state school, that there is more of a tone set by the president So how do you feel the president affects the tone, the feeling of the school, and how the students interact with the faculty and staff? There was a president a long time ago. uh, His name was Dave McKenna. He was president of Spring Arbor, and then he went out to be president of Seattle Pacific University. He's also president of Asbury Theological Seminary. And he said the job of the president was three things. Their job is to um, set the tone, see the vision, and state the mission. In Christian higher ed, the job of the president is as a figurehead. He needs to speak or she needs to speak into issues facing the campus, how the campus is going to address cultural issues. He needs to communicate often. There needs to be a, a physical presence. So he, he does or she does by the decisions they make in Christian higher ed, in the chapel, speaking in chapel on a fairly regular basis. They do set the tone of what will and will not be tolerated. They also need to set the vision. Are they the only ones who speak into the vision? Absolutely not. I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer. I think there are a lot of people at Indiana Wesleyan who are more intelligent than me and smarter than me. But I'm the president, and so it's my job to make sure that I I see the vision after I've gathered the input, and I need to be able to communicate that. And everything has to be coming back to mission. You've got to state the mission. You've got to make sure that you can connect the dots to what we're doing to the mission and the mission's values. The president doesn't get to change the mission. The visions change. There are different decisions that have to be made in my tenure that didn't have to be made 15 years ago. So setting the tone and seeing the vision varies, but it all has to be anchored back in the mission. Those are three vital things that the president has to do. Well, I think that's a great way to wrap up this show. Thank you for the opportunity, and um, I want to wish you well with the new uh, podcast. It was a great afternoon. Thank you so much, Dr. Kalaga. 
Simply Why is brought to you by Indiana Wesleyan University. IWU is a nationally renowned, Christ-centered academic community dedicated to providing leading, innovative education opportunities for students of all ages, backgrounds, and life stages. To learn more about IWU's online, on-site, and hybrid programs, visit indwes.edu. And make sure to follow us on social media as well. Thanks so much for listening and have a great day.